Hi there. Welcome to the Second Adolescence Podcast. Here, we talk about all things queer healing and second adolescence. So what is second adolescence, you might ask? Second adolescence is a sort of developmental life stage queer people navigate in our post-coming out adult years after growing up within an anti-queer world. For many, second adolescence is about healing the wounds of our younger queer selves, gaining the experiences they missed out on, and unlocking what it means for us to exist as our most free and true selves. I am your host, Adam James Cohen, psychotherapist and human who went through his own second adolescence. On this week's episode, we have Nat Urban. Nat is a queer non-binary artist and writer who is currently working on a badass project on queerness and girlhood which you'll hear them talk about towards the end of this episode. But first, gosh, Nat brings such an interesting and important story to this show, and I feel so grateful they wanted to let us all into it. You'll hear them share about their own adolescence in which they actually came out and kind of stepped into this role as this primary out loud and proud queer person in their high school who other queer people started looking up to. But Nat shares how this out loud and proudness was kind of connected to this overcompensation for some painful rejection they were experiencing at home and lots of internal struggle they were navigating. They go on to share about the evolution of their experience in their queerness and their mental health journey and how stepping into their non-binary identity in the past couple years has come with another layer of needing to travel through a second adolescence. This was such a powerful conversation. And just a heads up, there is discussion about the topics of depression, suicide, and self-harm. So I invite you to do whatever you might need as you listen to take care of yourself. And as with each episode of Second Adolescence, I really want to invite you as listener to listen with open curiosity, knowing that each of our stories are different and unique. You might hear some guests share things that really differ from your experience, whereas other guests might share things that really speak to what you went through or are currently going through. And I really hope that all of this happens and that together we can continue growing and expanding our awareness of what life and queerness and healing can be for folks. If after the show you want to connect further, feel free to head on over to secondadolescencepod.com for show notes and more, or you can follow the show on Instagram at, at Second Adolescence Pod. All right, welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Second Adolescence. I'm yeah. really yeah, I'm really excited and curious to have you here and curious to see where this conversation goes. And I guess before going anywhere, I like to invite the person on your end of things just to give a little mini introduction to the listeners, just to give a little context to who the person is behind the voice before we get started. Yeah, I'm Nat. I use they them pronouns. I'm 22. I just graduated from college, so you know I have no idea what's going on with my life as happens when you just graduate college. Yep. I just moved to LA and I'm really into costume design, getting into like seamstressing, sewing, super excited about that. And I also am currently taking a gap year and hoping to go get my PhD in gender studies. That's kind of where we're sitting right now in life. Oh my gosh. Cool. First off, congrats on graduating college. Very Thank exciting. You. And yes, it is such a wild time, right? Like that time right after college there's such a transition and it's so common for people to be like, well, I'm still trying to figure this out. I don't know what's going to come next. It sounds like though you have a general clue. You're thinking about going back to grad school. Tell me about that interest of going to get your PhD in gender studies. So my undergrad degree was in race, gender, sexuality studies, creative writing, and Spanish. Cool. Three majors, 
I don't know how to not do everything at wow. all at the same time. You were a busy bee. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So in doing that, I came out during that time as non-binary and I really like restructured the way I look at the world. And something that's really, really interesting to me is how I navigate the world as a trans person. Cause I think a lot of theory can end up really like nebulous and really like up here out of the body. And like, at the end of the day, like I have a body and I do have to navigate the world as does everyone else. Um, and so I'm really interested in these ideas of embodiment and like actual experience, because once again, I think theory gets super caught up in nebulous in like, have you heard the saying of like, they're playing Kames, which is a version of chess that doesn't exist when mm. talking about philosophers, where it's like, you're spending all this time playing Kames, which isn't a real game. It's not affecting the real world. You're playing a made up game and you're studying a made up game. And sometimes I feel theory get bogged down in that. So I'm really, really interested in centering ourselves in experience, in bodies and context of history, you know? Uh, cool. Okay. I want you to be my professor. I want to take all the classes. I am loving this. And I feel like I'm going to learn a lot. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, so it's starting to make sense why you wanted to come on the show. But I'm curious, like, tell me, why did you want to come on? It sounds like, yeah, of course you have your hands in so much work around gender studies and all of that and your own personal experience. But yeah, what, what pulled you to want to come on and share your story? Well, first of all, I didn't think I was going to. I'm playing this game lately where I see things and I say, that sounds cool, but nobody would ever want me to do that. And I say, well, they're going to say no if I don't try. So I'm going to try because the worst they'll say is no. And they were going to say that if I didn't try. Mm -hmm. So it was partly an exercise in me having a little faith in myself and trying for new things and things that I don't necessarily think I'm qualified for, but I know the people around me would lift me up and be like, no, you can do this. Mm. Yeah. But also I feel like my experience of second adolescence is different than other people's because I did initially come out very young. Like I had a high school girlfriend. That is something almost none of my friends can say is that I had a high school girlfriend. And so there's this idea of like, well, I came out younger. So in theory, I would have had those normal coming of age rituals hit at those normal times and I won't necessarily have that second adolescence. Mm. And I found that that's not true. <laughs> mm. And I find that I am experiencing everyone around me having a second adolescence. And the way I'm experiencing that from the outside has also affected the way I'm able to navigate, especially the dating world in terms of where people are at in their journey. And I find myself considered a queer elder to people older than me, which is weird. And something I've been thinking about a lot is age in terms of queerness. I mean, I have 30-year-olds who are like, they came out later than me and my experience of queerness is bigger than theirs. And they come, mm. not bigger than, that's not the right word, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And they come to me for advice and I act as an elder to those people. And that can be really confusing. And because I came out so young, I'd been out for like, I don't know, six months. And I was already the queer elder because that's longer than anybody else was out. And so I never really had the chance to center myself in my own identity because I was trying to be out loud proud for the people around me. Because I think there was one lesbian power couple and that was really it. And mm -hmm. so there was not a lot of people who were queer and happy because mm -hmm. we had a lot of kids at our school like getting sent back to foreign countries to go to Catholic school when they got caught being queer. That was right around the time, what's her name on Tumblr? I can't remember her name, but she committed suicide because of her experience as trans. And so that was mm -hmm. like the context of the world I was living in of like, there's a good possibility I'm going to get kicked out of my house when I come out. There's a good possibility like this is what's happening in real life to people around me. And so somebody's got to be okay. 
(laughs) Somebody's got to be okay. And I'm Mm. okay with that being me. And so I never really had the chance to settle into my own identity because I was really, really working hard to be that person for other people. And I did that throughout college too. I mean, I came out as non-binary, I think junior year and Mm. senior year. I was like, no, I'll be the bitch. Like I'll be the mean, I'll be the mean dyking class. I'll say something because I know you're too scared to. And I don't care. I'm graduating. What are you going to do? What are you going to do to me? I'm leaving. And so I've been playing that role for a long time. And there's stories I hear from my mom about her friends whose kids have looked up to me. And it makes me feel so good. But there's also like the underlying feeling of, dude, you shouldn't look up to me. I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing. And nobody does. But I don't know. I feel like I inhabit a really interesting middle space. Okay. There's so many things I want to say and places I want to <laughs> dive into and questions I want to ask. But I guess I'm just like, there is this double-edged sword of being the person who has the access or ability or whatever to step into that space of being that out loud and proud vocal person, the role model. Like It's such a gift to be offering to folks. And I'm sure there was some sense of feeling some strength from that yourself. And there's also so much laboring that that involves. And as you're speaking to it, by stepping in that role, it's gotten your own way of being able to fully dive into your own internal experience and sift through what you need to sift through. Whoa. Okay. So just to set some context. So where were you growing up? Where did that kind of first adolescence take place? Mm Mm-hmm. So I grew up in the Northwest suburbs of Chicago. Mm -hmm. People there know my town because we have the Ikea. (laughs) Every time I meet other people, I'm like, oh, this is where I'm from. And they're like, "Mm, you have the Ikea. I go, yes. (laughs) So I grew up heterosexual mom and dad. I have a younger brother. I was a dancer and a figure skater. So you know my idea of my body is so healthy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I inhabited these really feminine spaces as a young mm. person. And we're in the suburbs, baby. Like, I didn't know what being gay was until I was maybe 14, because I'd never even heard the words before. <sighs> so yeah, I was growing up in like a world really devoid of queerness. Like, I didn't even know that was an option. I didn't know it was a thing until middle school. Yeah, that's kind of the context. <laughs> wow. Yeah, totally. Okay. And so then it sounds like starting in adolescence, as you were getting older, you started to discover your queerness. Like what was Mm -hmm. that process like for you? Yeah. So like every other bitch, when I was 14, I got a Tumblr (laughs) 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 and I never saw anything about lesbians, but I saw a lot of stuff about gay men. And I was like, that seems about right. Like it was very Mm -hmm. much like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. There was never Mm -hmm. any moment of like, oh, that's weird. I was like, no, yeah, vibes. Let's go. Mm -hmm. And then later I was like, oh, I could do that too, guys. (laughs) I could do that. But there was a lot of fear around that. Mm. And when I was like 14, I told my mom everything, you know, I was 14. (laughs) Um, Mm. And I told my mom, I was like, hey, like I'm questioning. I don't really know what's going on because it is like you're in the middle of puberty. Nothing makes sense. Everything Mm -hmm. is weird. And it was very much a moment of like, I don't know what's going on. And I just want to talk to you because you're my mom. And she was like, nope, you're following a fad. Like you just want to be like everybody else. Come talk to me when you have real concerns about who you are. And I was like, damn, okay. Mm. I actually repressed that memory until I had to come out again, uh, which was rough to remember that uh, three years later. It was rough. And so Mm -hmm. through that time, I identified as bisexual for a long time. I played the label game. I don't know if you know about the label game where you'll take just any labels. You don't have to be all the way gay. Like Mm. there was a while where I was like, guys, I'm homoflexible because as long as I could feasibly end up with a man, 
I didn't have to tell anybody. Mm. There was still a chance I would be normal. And I really wanted to be normal so bad. And sometimes I still do. It's something I struggle with a lot is like, mm-hmm. I love being queer and I would not like to be anything else. It makes me so much who I am. It's something I'm so passionate about. It's a community I love. But God, if I wish I wasn't normal sometimes. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because what would my life be like if it was and so eventually I have a lesbian power couple at my high school took me in the back room of the band room and we talked we had a very serious talk and they were like nah come on you're gay and I was like fuck I'm gay oh no mm. and for a long time lesbian was a bad word like I would not say lesbian I was gay and I didn't like it it made me feel icky I think a lot about bad words now because I love to be a lesbian. I love to be a dyke. Dyke is my gender. It's my identity. It's everything who I am. I have a mirror behind me that says dyke on it. It's my favorite. Mm. It's my prized possession Mm. because that word was so dirty for so long. Um, And I eventually did come out again. I came out when I was 16. It was really rough, but it was fine. My parents got mad at me actually because I told them I had a safe place to go if they kicked me out of the house. And they were like, why would you do that? And I was like, have you ever heard yourself talk about gay people? Because I have. (laughs) I was there. Uh I heard what you said. Even if you didn't register that I was listening, I was. Mm. I remember when gay marriage was legalized and I was in the car with my mom and I was testing the waters. You know, we were doing the little toe dip of like, what are you going to say? Is this going to make me feel safe? Um, And I just kind of was like, oh, that's really cool. Like, that's really awesome. And I, you know, saw this awesome story of like some guy's mom who like ran through the house. And like, oh, my God, someone's going to get gay one day. Mm. And I was really excited because I was like, oh, I could like have a life because that was a big thing for me was I was just like, well, I'm simply never going to have a life. I can't I can never come out. I can't get married. My family's going to hate me. Everyone around me is dying, getting shipped off to foreign countries, getting sent to Catholic school. Those Mm. are the stories I'm seeing. This is the life I'm seeing. Mm. I don't see a way for me to ever be happy. Mm. So gay marriage got legalized. That was my moment of, oh, like my life doesn't have to suck. Maybe this doesn't have to be a bad thing. Mm. Maybe I could have a life that would be a little normal. Once again, at the time, I wanted nothing more to be normal. And Mm. I like brought it up to my mom in the car, little toe dip in the water of like, Mm. is this going to be okay? And she was like, I just don't think it was the Supreme Court's place to step in. And I was like, well, we're going back in the closet, baby. (laughs) Um, They didn't know. They didn't know that that was what I was doing. They didn't know I was testing the waters. And so when I did finally come out at 16, it's funny because I have done this, a three foot by four foot painting of myself laying on a gay flag. And then I realized I had to take it home. I was like, I can't hide this. Like, And I was really proud of it. It got into an art show. So I was like, well, I have to tell them now because it's got to come home. It's going in an art show. I got to say something. They want to know. And I want them to know, but I'm terrified. And so I finally told my mom, I like had a full, I would have like about once a month, just like a full screaming, crying, throwing up breakdown. Mm-hmm. And they would be like, what's going on? I'd be like, I can't tell you. And mm-hmm. that would be the whole conversation. And it happened like once a month happened a lot um and I finally told her and she was like okay and I was like what the fuck do you mean okay like what do you mean okay I have this whole history of all these terrible things you've said about gay people all the things you've said to me and it's just fine and that was really hurt for me to process and like I've only just rebuilt my relationship with my mom like my relationship with my parents is a very new thing because of how messy that all was and it took me years to get an apology because I really wanted an apology how things went when I was 14 because that really fucked me up for a long time 
And still, like, it's still something that I talk about in therapy. It's still something that bothers me and acted as a like starting place for a lot of complex I have now to kind of build off of. Yeah. And she just kind of was like, well, I don't remember that. And I was like, okay, cool. Like that was a formative trauma for me. And it's great that you don't remember that. I'm glad you don't have to deal with that. Mm -hmm. It's something I've had to deal with a lot with my parents of like them not realizing they do bad things. And like, Mm -hmm. there was a conversation I had with my parents where like my dad called me to my face a failure. He was like, well, if you do this, you're a failure and you failed. And obviously I started crying. Like what the heck? (laughs) And later later I texted my mom about it and I was like, well, he called me like a failure to my face. She was like, that didn't happen. I was like, you were sitting next to him. What do you mean mm. that didn't happen? You were right there, babe. Like mm. it did happen. And they don't mean it. Like they don't mean to, but it's hard to realize that you've made a mistake yeah. and apologizing is hard. And for a long time, the apologies I got were like, well, sorry, I'm a terrible mother. And I didn't know what I was doing. And it was my first time being a mom. And I'm like, cool. It's my first time being a person. Like it's my mm. first time existing. So mm. I don't think that's, I don't think that's a free pass. Let me, I want to just jump in real fast just because yeah. I'm, I mean, first off, like my heart is hurting so much for little you who's having to go through all of this. Yeah, she's been through the ringer. <laughs> totally, totally. And I'm also then thinking about what you shared before, how in high school you did rather quickly step into this empowered queer role. And so I'm thinking about kind of these two almost seemingly opposing forces of where you were kind of internally not feeling that support within your own kind of family system and and your own mini community there. But then at some point you shift into kind of being this support for other folks. Tell me about how did that happen? Yeah. I think part of it is the overcompensating. Mm. One thing about me, I have to do everything all the time. Uh, And I always have to be doing a good job. That is something I'm working on, but it's Mm. how my life has been where I just need to be perfect. I need to be right. I can't be failing. And so it was almost a way for me to apologize for being queer was Mm. to be the best at it. Mm. And knowing what I was going through, I knew that everybody around me was going through it too. And It took a long time for me to realize that like being queer wasn't a death sentence to my happiness in life. I knew I wasn't going to necessarily die, but I really didn't think my life was going to be anything. Mm. And I am more into that life a long time ago, which sucks. (laughs) It sucks so much. Like the day Mm. you have to mourn that your grandma might never buy you a wedding dress and Mm. might never speak to you again is a hard day. It was not a good day for me. And so knowing that that was happening to the people around me sucked. And also when you're one of the only out queer people, you're who people come to, regardless of whether or not you're ready for it, because Mm -hmm. you're one of the only ones, especially once our lesbian power couple graduated, it was me. So people were coming to me for help when I had to do the best I could. And I didn't want them to feel the way I felt. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to feel supported. I wanted them to feel like it was an okay thing. And, you know, I had people when I graduate come to me and be like, hey, like you were the first lesbian I saw, like be happy. And you were the first person who I thought, oh, I could be this and be happy. Like this could be okay. And a lot of that was me covering up how unwell I was. This is so bad, but like literally I've had nurses when I go to like see them for my depression when I walk in and in the hallway, I'm so happy. And the second we sit down, it's just like, bam, tears. We're sobbing. Mm. I haven't slept for two weeks. I'm unwell. Mm. I'm suicidal. And they're like, I never would have guessed. I'm Mm. really good at masking. Like my Mm. therapists know when I come in and I sit down that there's no way to know how I'm doing. Uh (laughs) Unless I'm doing really, really bad. There's, you got to ask me like three times for me to stop 
acting basically and pretending totally. that everything's great. Because that's what you had to do. That's how, what little you learned to do. Yeah. Yeah. Because my parents didn't know. And mm. those like once a month breakdowns were the breakthrough of how I was feeling. But mm. in between that, I didn't want anybody to know. So being able to act as that person for the people around me made myself feel better that I was hiding and lying because it's not a fun way to live. Living a lie sucks and it wears you down really fast and you just hate everything. It makes you hate your parents because you're like, God, like I hate you right now. Like <laughs> mm. You see me as this person who isn't real. And that was a huge thing. And so trying to be the person I wanted to be, trying to be a real person at school was really important to me of like, I don't get to be a person very often at that mm. point in my life. And sometimes still, I don't get to feel like a person. I don't get to be a person. I have to do this construction of what other people have built me to be. So when I'm at school, I get to be a little bit of a person and I'm still going to do all the little things I do to apologize for existing. <laughs> and part of that apology is being there for other people. For a long time, like I have a super messed up relationship with failure. And I felt like me being queer was my big failure in life. Mm. And so everything else had to be perfect to apologize yeah. for mm. queerness ruining the rest of it. Where like, well, that was my big mistake and that's what I get. And I can't, I can't mess up anymore. That's it. That's the mistake. Being accessible, part of it was an apology. Part of it was, I know what I'm feeling right now. And I don't want anybody else to feel that. And part of it is fake it till you make it, babe. <laughs> fake it till you make it. You know, I hated myself for being queer for so long and I was so uncomfortable, but I faked it till I made it. You know, I, it was that overcompensation of like, yeah, I'm a lesbian. Haha. Like, what are you going to do about it? Fake it till you make it. If I pretend long enough, eventually I might start to believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. I mean, yeah. I'm just like that fake it till you make it. Like, again, this double-edged sword, like on one hand, it's a survival strategy. It gets us through and can give us some sense of both protection and strength. But yeah, as you're speaking to, when it's coming from this place of overcompensation, there's something underneath that has to be tended to at some point. Mm -hmm. And we just might not be at a point yet where we're able to tend to that. And it sounds like for you that a lot of that has happened kind of as you've gotten older. And so, yeah, yeah. I'm curious, like, yeah, you mentioned despite kind of getting to have a queer romance in, in high school. And I'd love to meet if you want to share about that. Actually, I'd love to. First, like, let's start there. Yeah. What was yeah. that like? Dude, it was so crazy. So that was after I started seeing my first therapist who was an older lesbian. And mm. was she a good therapist for my brain? Not necessarily, but she was what I needed. Mm. where I would go in and we'd do the little, like, how are you? And she'd be like, oh, I went to see a movie with my wife. And I'd be like, what? <laughs> you mm. what? Tell me everything. Right, that's possible. Yeah. Literally, like, uh, mm. my therapy with her was basically, you can have a wife one day. You can be mm. successful. You could go get a job and be successful and have a life. And go to the movies with your wife on the weekend. So I got my first girlfriend. We met at a high school dance. She went to a different school than me. She went to like one of our rival schools. And I thought she was so pretty. Looking back, so embarrassing. It's the 2010s. She was wearing a fedora. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I thought she was so cute. Mm. And so my friend went over and gave her my phone number because I was too scared to. And then we texted like all day after the dance. Like we were at Steak and Shake. God, it was high school. <laughs> and I was texting her and we were talking. I don't remember what our first date was, but we ended up dating for about three months. And it was weird. 
I am one of my only friends who ever had a high school girlfriend. Um, and I forget that often when we talk about exes and I'm like, oh yeah, my high school girlfriend. And they're like, you did what? But yeah, I mean, we were 16, so it was pretty lame. You know, we went to the mall. I remember, oh, our first date was at the mall. So high school of us, we didn't have cars. So you get dropped off at the mall. And I was Valentine's Day right after we had met. And so she was like, I need you to come meet me. I was like, well, I don't really have time. Like I have dance class. Like I gotta, I have stuff. And she was like, well, if you could just like stop by the mall, like if you could get whoever's driving you to stop by, um, I have something to give you. Uh, and she gave me a rose. She like came down a little escalator and gave me a rose and gave me a hug. And then I had to go. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> but how cute is that? And like, that <laughs> was like, literally like at the time it was like a top 10 moment of my life where I was like, oh my God, not only is this validating who I am to myself, but I'm having kind of like a little love story moment. And we dated for three months. You know, obviously we broke up. We broke up two weeks before prom. Oopsie. Oh no. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, lesbian therapists helped me through that breakup, which was awesome. And that's the other thing. I got to have my first breakup in high school, too. Right. So there's like this practice element of like, I've had practice having relationships, you know, and it was fun while it lasted. Mm. And I'm just, yeah, I'm just struck by it because like, okay, because on one hand, you were able to start getting to have these experiences that maybe other queer people don't get to have until a little bit later. But yet, because you were kind of really thrust into this role of this out loud and proud queer person. It sounds like there were also elements of people's second adolescence that you had to step into later in life. Tell me about kind of that part of your story. What happened there? Yeah. So one thing that comes into it is I only came out as non-binary two years ago. So there is this sense of like, I have to relearn myself through this identity. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a lot about myself but looking back, as I've said a couple of times, I wanted so badly to be normal. And mm. I would do anything to apologize for my queerness and be normal in every other way. It's so like I look back at pictures of myself and I'm like, who is she? And is she okay? And I think of my younger self as a girl, even though I no longer identify as such because that's the life she was living. And she did not dress the way she wanted to. She hated her body. She was so skinny. Oh my God. She hated mm. her body. And so there's all of those pieces of kind of relearning who I am when I'm not apologizing for existing, because that's so much of what my life was, was apologizing for existing, apologizing for being different and apologizing for ruining my own life. And so kind of the opportunity to leave that behind requires relearning who I am. And so there's that aspect of a second adolescence in that I am going on testosterone soon. That's going to be a new puberty. My attraction is going to change. A lot of things about my body are going to change. Things that I don't know if I'm going to be okay with yet because a lot of feminine shape of my body is a crutch. Mm. <laughs> Where at the end of the day, I know at least I'm pretty. Mm. Uh, and if I lose that, I don't know how I'm going to be. And so like this relearning about myself this relearning of how I date people because there are people who don't like that I'm trans and there are people who don't get it and treat me poorly because of it. And so there's this extra layer of dating of like, am I going to be safe? Um, Are you going to be respectful? Uh, I had a hookup that misgendered me the entire time. And that was really hard for me. Mm. But I wrote a poem about it, $100. So golden, <laughs> like silver lining. <laughs> silver lining. And, oh my gosh. Uh-huh. <laughs> it earned me $100. That's mm. so terrible. <laughs> no, I mean, sometimes you have to laugh. I so get it. Like, oh, yeah. I, And it seems like I can see humor seems like it's been a tool of yours oh, to kind of yeah. just process when things are just fucking shitty. Yeah. Well, you know, you got to laugh. It's ridiculous. It's funny. Oh, you have to laugh. 
sometimes my therapist will look at me i'll we'll make a joke about something he'll go no not ha ha mm. i go well a little ha ha dan mm. like come on Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's a little funny (laughs) I mean it's kind of like yeah like that overcompensating like on one hand it's a tool it helps us and then yes it's both and right like it can be useful and then we also have to tend to kind of what's underneath the laughs as well totally exactly yeah Mm -hmm. so even though I dated when I was in high school there were this is where I'm going to get academic about it there were coming of age rituals that I did not get to interact with so like on social media is a big thing that I've been learning about is coming of age rituals and queerness in terms of social media. There are things that I couldn't post because it wasn't safe. I never had a date to the prom. Never. Well, I almost did. I broke up with her. But it's not like I had a dating pool at school. It's not like there was some guy who thought I was cute who was going to ask me to the prom with a sign in front of everyone. You know, I knew I was never going to be popular. I knew I was weird. I knew a lot of people hated me because I was weird. One of the first things that happened to me freshman year of college was I got a prank phone call from someone from my high school to stay. I don't know who did it to call me a dyke and make fun of me. And like, to stay, I don't know who it was, but it was mm. one of those moments of like, sometimes I let myself forget how much people hate me for existing and that I'm not always safe. Because uh, it's not fun to remember that I'm not safe. And so sometimes I just kind of forget on purpose. And so a lot of those things like later kind of have come out in ways of like, I have to relearn how to navigate the world because I spent so much of it hiding. Um, I have to relearn how to date as I learn who I am and learn how to interact with those people because I'm about to go through boy puberty, sweaty, icky boy puberty. <laughs> That's going to affect how I date. I am attempting to get tested for ADHD autism. My therapist was so surprised when I told him I'd never been tested. He was like, really? I was like, yeah. That diagnosis, if there is one, is going to change how I date, how I go through the world. So having to relearn these things about myself and relearn my identity has made it really difficult, especially because, let's be honest, I still haven't fully processed the high school stuff. Uh, we've only just gotten to it mm-hmm. in the last year. Mm-hmm. My parents have only just gotten to the point to actually being able to apologize. Wow. Freshman year of college, I didn't think I was going to have a relationship with my parents. I thought that uh-huh. that was dead and over. I thought I was going to hold on to it for them to pay to, for college. And then I would graduate and I would never talk to them again. Mm. That's where we were at. Uh, now I call my mom for fun. That's weird. Whoa. I think they went to therapy and didn't tell me about it. It's really crazy. Whoa. Because did they just start acting and talking differently towards you? Or what did you notice? Like what was from your end? Yeah. How did you see the change? So freshman year of college, at the end of the year, my counselor said, so when you go home, you should go to the hospital. And I said, oh, damn, that's so crazy of you. Thanks for not calling the cops. Okay. Mm. And I text my parents. I said, when I come home, I need to go to the hospital. They were like, so here's some therapists. And I said, no, 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 I need to go to the hospital. And I think that scared them. I don't think they knew how bad it was. So we had to do like some family therapy. And that was like the first glimpse they got into where I was actually at mental health wise, which was not a good place. (laughs) And there were a couple of times where I just got, I got really mad at them. And I was like, listen, I'm tired of hearing like boohoo for me. I'm a bad mom. Like, I really don't give a shit. I was done being sad and I was angry. I was like, I don't care. Like, this is so bad and this is the wrong words. But I'm sorry that you broke your child, but I'm the one that's broken. So get over yourself. 
Mm-hmm. And I know that's not the right language, but that's where I was at. That's where I was like, totally. I, like, that's the anger. That's the hurt. Sorry, yes. you feel bad about it, but like, <laughs> at the end of the day, I'm the one who wants to kill myself, and you get to go to bed at night. Like, right. so grow up, you know? Yeah, I need you to stop talking about your own experience. I need you to yeah. tune into mine as your child. Yeah, I'm like I really don't give a shit that you feel bad. You should feel mm-hmm. bad that finally hit them once again i think they went to therapy and didn't tell me about it because the way that they communicated changed a lot because for a long time i've been trying to change the way we communicated where i'm like when i go home you can't talk to me about food and whatever diet you're on you can't do it because i work so hard to feel better about myself and then i come home and i have to start over and for a long time they just couldn't they didn't get it and all of a sudden the way they communicated changed and you know like one time i came home and my mom was like oh are you happy to be home and i was like honestly like not really and it hurt a lot because she looked like picked dog I felt awful I felt awful but I didn't want to lie to her I wasn't happy to be home I was feeling really unsafe with myself and it was like the first time that that wasn't my fault and she didn't talk about like how that hurt her she did look like a kicked dog but that was the end of it so I haven't asked about it but I'm pretty sure they went to therapy and thank god Because they have, they worked really hard and it's cute because sometimes I'll go home and my mom will tell me a story about something that happened and she'll, did I do a good job? Because they're really Mm -hmm. trying. They want to do a good job. They want to have a relationship with their child. And thank God, Mm -hmm. his life is so much better having that support system. But it's also really weird because I fully mourned that relationship a long time ago Mm -hmm. and it came back. And I, for a long time and sometimes still don't know what to do with that. Yeah, totally. It's weird. But yeah, anyway, my mom's my friend now, which is weird. Yeah. Part of it has been like censoring myself around them less because I spent my whole life censoring myself around them. And so now mm. when I text them, I try really hard to be authentic of how I would text anybody else of like, yeah, yeah I'm going to talk a little weird. I'm going to say some weird shit. Totally. And that's who I am. And I need y'all to, to get on that page. I need y'all to be on that level of even if yeah. you don't get it, to accept it. And there's been a couple of times when my mom has asked me, like she asked me, she was like, so you're a lesbian. I was like, yeah. She was like, but you're also not a girl. I said, yeah, yep. She said, can you explain that to me? I said, I don't think you're going to get there. I just need you to be okay with it. She said, okay. And they're working on it. They're trying yeah. really hard. They fuck yeah. it up a lot, but they're trying really hard. And that's more than I ever thought I was going to get. Mm, totally. I mean, gosh, I just want to say, I'm so appreciative that you're being so generous with this part of your story, with the journey it's been with your parents. I think for so many queer people, that is unfortunately also a part of their experience of having to navigate whether it's parents or other close relationships that are meaningful to them, but were sources of past pain, maybe current pain. And Mm -hmm. as we get into adulthood, we tend to have a bit more ability to do what we can, at least from our end to change things, whether that means having to do what you did, which I hear like put up certain boundaries where you need to, but while also do what you did, which is unabashedly be yourself as well and kind of bring your authenticity into that relationship. And in an ideal world, hopefully parents do, which maybe your parents have done, which is kind of work on their own stuff that they're Mm -hmm. working through and not kind of place that all onto their queer child to do that work for them. Gosh, it's just such a journey for so many folks. And I, I think, again, I just feel really appreciative that you let us into what your journey has been because it's not easy. The ideas of setting boundaries, it's not (laughs) easy stating your needs. It's not easy dealing with, there's a grief there. There's there's so much. So I'm touched to hear that it's gotten to the place that it's at now and also really sensitive to it's weird now. And you're still processing like, what 
does this mean? What is this relationship? And then, yeah, where does this go from here? Uh, yeah. 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 It's weird to trust them because that's something that I never did. And that has been really weird. Like I remember being in high school and like I had straight friends who were like best friends with their mom. And I was like, dude, what the hell? How is that okay? How are you navigating that? And now I'm like, oh my God, guys, I got to go call my mommy. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, she still messes up. So does my dad. They mess up all the time. Um, but the way they mess up, the way they deal with those mess ups is different. And the way they see me has changed a lot. For a long time, I think they saw me as broken and I saw me as broken. And I'm still working on that. But there was a lot of like, you're in therapy. Why aren't you better? Why do you still have panic attacks? Don't you have tools to deal with this? And it's like, well, I have tools to make it less bad, mm. but it's still going to happen. And, you know, they're better with that now where it used to be like, why is this even happening? And now it's like, mm. okay, like, what are the tools? Do you just need to sit on the phone with me? Like, you know, how can I help? I never used to call my mom when I was suicidal or you know, feeling like I was going to hurt myself. I never even crossed my mind to call my parents Mm. and they didn't know. And now like my mom keeps her phone on at night so that if I text or call, she can be there for me. And I do, I do, which is crazy. Mm. And she still doesn't really know what to do, but it's nice to know that she, she cares enough to want to sit with me through it because I know it's scary. And sometimes you just want to hug from your mom. And it's something I didn't think I was ever going to get again. And so I try to really embrace the fact that I still get that because I know a lot of people don't. I'm going to cry. I love my mommy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, cry. Absolutely. There's, of course, so much feeling here. There's so much here. And there's yeah. been so much in your story. And I just feel so honored and touched, again, that you're letting us into it. Because I think, yeah, like, unfortunately, so many of us queer people have so much pain in our stories and pain in our histories, pain in our presence. Yet to tell those stories and share those stories and invite other people in who are feeling the same thing. Like that's how we create a community. That's how we don't feel alone in it. That's how we heal as a collective queer people. And so I just feel so grateful that you're being so transparent with your journey and story to support this healing of the folks who are listening. Oh, I wish I could jump (laughs) through that screen too and just kind of give you that hug too. Oh my goodness. Okay, well, I want to talk with you all day. There's so many more places to go, but before we wrap up, like, was there anything in particular that wanted to be a part of this conversation that feels like it hasn't been shared yet or said or anything else lingering on your end? Yeah, I would love to talk a little bit about femininity and girlhood because it's something that's so interesting to me. I have a friend, their name is Andy. I love them dearly. They're my bestie. Mm. And they're the only person in my life allowed to call me a girl. But some people are like, well, why am I not allowed to call you girl? Um, especially like white cis gay men get really defensive. They're like, well, I call everybody girl. I'm like, that's like blatantly untrue. <laughs> if I was a trans man and I said that to you, you would immediately stop. Yeah. Um, the only difference is I still, to your mind, look and act like a girl. And one thing about me and my friend, and it's part of why I'm doing this project about queerness and girlhood. Part of it is reclaiming my own childhood of all of these things that made me feel dirty. And all of these things that I felt like were a bad word are beautiful. Like all of these things that made me feel predatory and gross. Like, no, I was in love. And that's Mm. lovely. And that deserves to be held gently instead Mm. of treated with the disgust and horror that I often find myself looking back on and still feeling today where I feel predatory flirting with girls. Mm. There's no reason for me to feel that way, but it's something that is hard to let go of. Mm. So part of it is like a healing journey for me. Absolutely. But me and my friend, we always talk about femininity because we have this experience of feeling so connected to the history of womanhood and the history of femininity. It's part of why I love fiber arts is there's this like deep, rich history of women and resistance 
within fiber and arts. And there's this connection I feel to like my female ancestors. But at the same time, I know I don't identify as a woman. And so finding that way to interact with that history has been really interesting. And the way my friend described it, which I think is the most beautiful way to describe it, is that womanhood is like a dead rose and we're wearing white gloves and it's dead, but beautiful. It's grotesque, but it's something that we still love. And it's something that maybe hurt us with its thorns, but it's still beautiful. I like to describe us as like archaeologists. We're taking a dead culture and we're taking the bits that feel meaningful in a new context and holding on to those. And it's something really unique. I haven't found a lot of people who I'm able to have those conversations with, um, mm-hmm. which is why Andy is one of my best friends is because we're mm-hmm. able to have those discussions. But I'm just, I'm so interested in experiences of girlhood. I was a camp counselor at a Girl Scout camp for a long time. We were all gay. Fun fact about the Girl Scouts is we're all gay. And it was one of those things where I was able to watch little girls experience the same things I had as a little girl. And there would be things like, you know, we would see a girl and we'd all be like, "Mm, future lesbian coming through. (laughs) We're like, well, see you in 10 years, babe. Because we were that little girl. Um, Mm. And it was like healing for us as the adults. You know, we all like, Mm. you're not allowed to really talk about it. But we all would have like a rainbow lanyard on our backpack. And the middle schoolers would come up to you and go, I like your rainbow lanyard. And you'd be like, ah, we see each other. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you're not allowed to say it, but you know what these girls are experiencing. And they know that you've been there. And they know that you're a safe space. So there's this question that got posited by, I think her name is Marina Gonick, of like, are queer girls girls? Do you get to be a girl if you're queer? Does that depend on how your queerness shows itself? Like, what is that? What does that mean? Mm. And like a lot of childhood and interacting with other girls was participating in heterosexuality that felt unnatural. Like I have friends who we talk and we're like, remember when you would choose your crush for the year? Because not having a crush wasn't good enough. So you had to pick one. In order to interact with girlhood, you had to pretend to interact with these very specific rituals. And also... I know people who are adults going through girlhood. Um, My favorite TikTok series right now is Dylan Mulvaney, who's experiencing girlhood as an adult. That's so interesting. And I have so many questions about that and how it interacts with my experience of queer girlhood and how that interacts with a trans man experience of queer girlhood and how does that interact with somebody who's bisexual, apparent, all of these things. All of our experiences of girlhood are so unique. And some of us no longer feel connected to girlhood. For me, I'm like, yeah, dude, little girls, I love y'all. Little Mm. girls are weird. Little girls are smart. Little Mm. girls are up to things. Mm. And yeah, I just, I'm really interested in this idea of femininity as a dead culture and taking things from our queer childhoods that maybe in the past were traumatic or we didn't recognize as queerness or that made us feel dirty and wrong. Mm. I remember the first time I saw a girl naked was at summer camp and we were in the showers and I was so jealous because the girl I had a crush on, I didn't know I had a crush on her, would shower with her best friend. Mm. And that made me feel gross. That made me Mm. feel dirty. And looking back, no, it isn't. Like Mm. I was 14. That seems about right. Mm. And so part of it is giving myself a space and giving other queer people a space to be like, yeah, this is what girlhood was for me. And mm. this is what that experience looked like. And it wasn't a bad thing. It doesn't right. make me gross. My oh. experience of girlhood wasn't wrong. It wasn't weird. And being raised through a space of femininity or entering a space of femininity isn't inherently bad. 
And it can be something that provided us incredible growth and that we still love and hold close, even if it's something we no longer identify with. Mm. I always joke like the only time I'll ever have a gender is when I was a little girl and when I'm an old, old rural grandmother. Those are the only times I'll ever have a gender Mm. because there's (laughs) something so visceral about those two experiences of femininity. I think part of it is the escape from being seen as a sexual creature. I feel mm. like part of why I don't identify it as a woman is because it's so tied up in relation to men. And like, mm. when I would hang out with women, I'd be like, I simply am not one of you. And the way that people view you when you say, oh, I'm a girl, or I'm a woman. It's like an ill-fitting suit. It makes me kind of want to be like, ugh, like mm. bad texture. It's the wrong texture. It doesn't fit right. Mm. It's like that itchy Christmas sweater where the armpits itch because the seams are weird. It's not bad. It's just not right. And I've had a lot of people be like, well, you're lesbian, your gender is lesbian. And I'm like, yes, because there's such a community there. And there's mm-hmm. such a community of care and understanding of a history of experience mm-hmm. where it's like, at the end of the day, I'm a gender anarchist. None of this shit is real. But experiences are real. And the experiences I had growing up put me in connection to and in conversation with this incredible, beautiful community of lesbians. Mm-hmm. And those are the people I want to hold connection to. They understand when I say my gender is a lesbian because theirs is too. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I love femininity. I think it's so beautiful. And I think a lot of us have a really negative relationship to it because Mm. of the harm it's caused us. But I think looking at it as something that is dead in our past and that we can take what was beautiful and hold on to it and give it a new context. I quilt lesbian quilts, man. And it's one of those things that's like, it's a super conservative art form. The average age of a quilter is 65. First of all, little old ladies love me, I would like to say. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. They're so excited. But also, like, it has a super conservative history. It doesn't have to. And I can take this form that maybe is seen as oppressive and give it new life and say, yeah, yeah. fuck that. Femininity is seen as repressive and quilting is seen as an extension of that repression. And I'm going to say, screw you. And I'm going to take it and I'm going to make really cool dive art and y'all are going to suck it up. And I really Mm want to take things that me when I was younger dreamed about and thought was never possible and make them real for her because her life wasn't great. (laughs) Mm. And she could use a hug and she could Mm. use some things that bring her joy. Like I live in Hollywood. Can you imagine nine-year-old me finding out I live in Hollywood off of Hollywood Boulevard? She would shit her pants. Mm-hmm. She would lose her mind. She'd be so excited. Mm-hmm. And so part of it is like, I wanted an adventure, but part of it is I know that young me would be so excited to be here. And I know that she would not believe for a second what we've done. And she would be absolutely in awe of who we've been able to become. And I want to keep giving that to her because she's still there and she's really sad. And I don't no. want her to be anymore. Uh. So... I mean, and that is the journey of queer healing right there. Mm-hmm. Being in relationship with our younger selves and like being with their pain, being with their hopes, being with their dreams and engaging in life now in ways that would both perhaps blow their minds, but mm-hmm. also bring them such joy and bring them such healing. And I really mm-hmm. hear that in your story. And also in this project, there's such a connection with this little you and offering such healing there. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. This is so cool. And like, what's the medium of this project? 
Yeah, so it's a multi-stage project. I just started an internship at the Girl Museum, and my hope is through that I can do a series of ethnographies, so interviews with different queer people about their experiences of girlhood. I really want to talk to Dylan Mulvaney. I'm really going to be up in her business. I want to talk to her so bad. And so I have some friends I want to interview about their experiences of girlhood. Mm. And so I'm going to do a series of ethnographic interviews. And I've been doing academic research, so reading articles, doing literary reviews, looking at what other people have said and, and research around experiences of youth, girlhood, and queerness. And then I'm doing poetry and I'm doing a series of fiber arts. So I've got some art quilts planned. I've been making a lot of friendship bracelets. Something about friendship bracelets is so deeply connected to romance and queerness and lesbianism for me. And so I've been making a lot of friendship bracelets. And I also make clothes. And so a part of me wants to look at some of these other mediums that are seen as kind of repressive and dead feminine folk arts crafts Mm. and think of them as high art and think about how I connect with those things. So like I'm really, I'm getting into knitting. I'm getting back into crochet. I'm learning how to tap lace, or at least I'm trying to. It's really hard. One thing I kind of want to do is think about what my younger self's dream outfit is. And I want to make it for her. Because there's so many things about who I was when I was younger that I hated so much. Um, I hated that I liked pink. I hated that I was girly. And dude, that shit rocks. Yeah. I dye my hair pink all the time. And she would be so excited. And she always wanted also to do everything all the time. And I think we knew it wasn't possible, but I'm doing it anyway. Mm. Everybody, when they were little, their dream job was like one thing. Like, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a veterinarian. I wanted to be a break dancing artist from Paris. I didn't know that you couldn't be from a place you weren't born in. That's life. But I wanted to do everything. And I wanted to do all these big things. And somehow, I didn't think we were going to make it. It looked a little hairy there for a minute. Mm. But somehow, I moved to freaking Hollywood. And I'm doing it. Being an artist, I am doing research that I love. That's insane. And I can't believe I made it here. And I owe it to her to keep doing it, even when it's hard. So Mm. I'm excited. (laughs) Yes, I'm loving this. Oh, beautiful. Well, if folks who are listening want to follow up with you, if they want to reach out, if they want to kind of stay tuned to the work you're doing, what's a good way they can do so? If you're someone who likes to invite that. I do. I've got an art Instagram. It's called Peony Daisy White Clover. Those are all flowers that have a lot of meaning to me and something I want to do a project with. I also have a personal Instagram, which is just Herbsy, U-R-B-S-I-E. Those are probably the two best places to find me. Feel free to like DM me, even just to talk. Something about one thing about me, I love to talk, <laughs> which is why I was like, podcast, perfect. I do not shut up. This is great. <laughs> so yeah, just like even if somebody just wants to reach out to talk or something I said really resonated with them in their story, I would love to hear about it. I love to talk about queerness. There's a reason I'm the person all my friends come out to, and that's because they could say literally anything. And I'd be like, yeah, cool swag. Let's go. Let's talk about it. Love it. And it's funny because I've had friends get mad at me that I don't give the like, I'm so glad you trusted me speech anymore. I'm like, because of course you trusted me. <laughs> you know, I don't care, babe. Like, yeah, of course yeah. you told me. And I'm glad you did. So yeah. Cool. Well, gosh, Nat, I'm just still so touched that you came on to offer your story and talk about the work you're doing and your whole healing journey, which like for all of us is a continuous journey, of course. Yes. But I just feel so appreciative and so grateful and just so affected by our conversation. So thank you so much. Thank and I'm you. really excited to get to invite others into it too. Yeah, thank you. Hey, thanks for joining us for today's conversation. 
Feel free to head on over to secondadolescencepod.com for show notes and more. And you can connect further by following the show on Instagram at, at secondadolescencepod. If you're interested in being a future guest on the show and you want to come on and share about your own second adolescence, visit secondadolescencepod.com slash be a guest and you can submit your interest there. All right, that's it for me for now. Whether it's morning, afternoon, night, wherever we're finding you in your day, go on out there and keep doing things that would make younger you absolutely thrilled. That is what it's all about. Mm. All right, take good care. <laughs>